New on Curiosity Stream. Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Kim Kardashian. Tycoons are in many ways the lifeblood of society. They are willing to put everything out there. They're willing to lose everything. See how the super elite use their money and power to shape our lives on Tycoons. Plus, from Japan's unbreakable super code to the algorithm mining your Bitcoin, we're breaking down the world's most famous encryptions on cracking the code. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Do I need to do hair and makeup? I, I forgot. <laughs> you, You're covered. You definitely look the best at all of us, so there's nothing to worry about there. All right, everybody. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Toronto Real Estate Show. Hello, Beautiful. Mr. TK. We, we got hey Daryl. We got some nice guests today. This yes. is great. Uh, no more lonely podcasts for us. No more lonely <laughs> podcasts. We are we have the privilege of having two fine gentlemen here, Mr. Jeremiah Shamus and Kenny Miles. Beautiful, Kenny. Miles Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not the first one to make that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm reading it off of your. I'm reading it off your screen here for some reason. Like I don't know you already. You've you've known us long enough. You should know my first name. You would think. You would think. Right? <laughs> I'm nervous. We're got a lot of noise in his head. It's hard for him to there, keep track of things. There is so much noise in this head. It is absolutely is ridiculous. Absolutely oh. ridiculous. It's my first time meeting these guys. Um, I want to introduce them. Jeremiah, uh, along with Mr. Miles here, leads a middle market investment sales team based in downtown Toronto. They help owners maximize the value of their commercial real estate assets with annual transac- transactions averaging 230 plus million dollars. Holy cow, these guys are heavy. They're selling hitters. everything. The uh, whole city. There is a heavy emphasis on redevelopment land for residential as well as office buildings and retail properties in the GTA and downtown Hamilton specifically. These, the good old hammer. These guys are beasts. I have the pleasure of knowing them through business and doing some, uh, well, almost two deals. Next month, it'll be <laughs> technically two deals with them. That's right. They are uh, a pleasure to deal with on some days. <laughs> thanks daryl you're you're great to deal with as well yeah I'll, yeah when are we able to tell the story about the uh the tail between the legs <laughs> i think he needs another month or so damn you no hey when, when why wait mm-hmm. why wait you want to tell it or should i i feel like you should but you know i i, I, I will tell it so I, uh, I bought a piece of land from these fine gentlemen out on Kingston Road, the one that I'm always complaining I haven't got a pre-consultation meeting on. And uh, they also were able to procure the neighboring property for us. Um, and then, like a group of idiots, we went with our, one of our partner's cousins to list the property. And uh, that did not work out the way we had envisioned and unfortunately for me I had to call these fine gentlemen and um, you know with my tail between my legs and ask them if they would forgive me and come back and work with me again and and actually the phone call I, I was planning on sending them an actual picture of me with a tail between my legs from my wife's Halloween costume (laughs) <laughs> but uh, 
I think it was enough to just go in there to suck a little butt. But uh, <laughs> and what and what they say and what they say? Did well, they accept I mean, or were they just like, oh, I'm not interested? Let's see how they bury me on this show. <laughs> I, I hung up immediately. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Listen, enough. you don't <laughs> sell two hundred and thirty million dollars worth of real estate by being offended by some guy like me. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. It was more along the lines of "We welcome you back with warm arms." With warm Never arms, <laughs> you finally made Move the right warm. decision, Daryl. That's right. Finally. <laughs> hey, listen. If you talk to my wife, it does generally take me quite a while to make the right decision. <laughs> I, I generally do not learn the first time round, but it's oh, good. Wow. There's listen. I have a sign on my board here. It says, uh, mistakes are evidence that you're trying. There's there no go. doubt about that. We've all yeah. made the mistakes and that's how we learn. I, I make am... more mistakes than I, than I make the right decisions. That's right. <laughs> there is plenty that's, of evidence of me trying. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Is one of those mistakes working with Daryl or? <laughs> no, this has been so far one of the very few right decisions. So that's right. It's, that's uh, right. I wouldn't call this work though. That's for damn sure. This is, that's true. This yeah, is being fun. friends with Daryl has been has been good. He teaches me a lot. So if you, if you guys are his experts and he's my expert, then that shows how little I know. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm way down on the yeah, chain. You here. don't want to be on the bottom of this totem pole. That's for damn sure. <laughs> So oh, we actually learn a lot from Daryl, and I would say it's uh, doing deals with Daryl is a constant entertainment of roller coaster up and down. Uh, <laughs> All right, so our relationships are very similar. That's right. Yeah. There is no, there is no standard box around here. Yeah. No, there Love isn't. It. I think we both shoot it straight, and that's what we really appreciate about appreciate about one another is we actually are telling the truth and telling it like it is. It's very, a very rare. hard to find. Very rare. Yeah. Yeah. So, You're the uh, most direct person we know, Daryl. It's a good thing. Y you know what? I mean, it, it, to my detriment sometimes and to my benefit sometimes, right? I mean, there's very few people that like to hear the truth, including me. <laughs> right? <laughs> so anyways, um, I think we've got that out of our systems now. So thank you. Appreciate that. Um, there is a lot of stuff to talk about. This market is bananas. It's very hard for us as quasi experts to have any idea what's going on out there. And that's why we like pseudo, to add pseudo professional, pseudo professional. I mean, you can tell by our studio and uh, TK's background right now flickering that we are at the top <laughs> of the professional food chain. Yeah, well, we're getting a really good deal on commercial leases right now. We got some great office space downtown, right? So we figured we'd upgrade during the pandemic for the show. Well, that's we're, a, we're in the studio right now. That's a great segue because I, I, Jeremiah likes to tweet. And uh, he sent out a, a tweet, I think it was last night. I don't know. Maybe I saw it this morning last night um, about having, you know, I guess a, a gigantic investor who is excited about the Toronto office market. Do you want to? Talk about that a little bit. Well, it it's not so much that he was excited about that. He's a he, he's a global investor, so he actually invests all over the world, uh, primarily focused on office, uh, class A, core, core plus stuff. And uh, their thought was that uh, they're bullish on office coming back. They think the settling of absorption of uh, the new tenancies more or less getting rid of the office space they need and don't need in the post-pandemic world 
um, will not be nearly as bad as what people think. So they've been quite aggressive in trying to acquire properties, but not so much aggressive on pricing. Um, and specifically, the two type of assets that they're looking at is single tenant office buildings have actually become more attractive um, versus multi-tenant office buildings. And it's it's a little bit funny because I mean they're he's playing in much larger realms like they're investing you know probably a minimum equity check of 100 million plus whereas we work in the middle market here in Toronto and we actually sold an office building in downtown Mississauga in the middle of the pandemic and it was a 94 percent uh, leased office building with a whole bunch of different tenancies so it was a multi um, multi-tenant building and it sold at a 575 cap which arguably you would say pre-pandemic is the same price so it was pretty funny to see that certain smaller private investors are taking a very long viewpoint on what's happening in the pandemic and they don't particularly believe that this will have a lasting effect i guess to the detriment of where most people are taking it to the extremes, like the death of the office, which we just simply don't believe. You know, we think there will be probably a, a 10 to 15% change in the occupancy of certain different um, or certain tendencies, but it's never going to go to the extreme that everyone else is thinking of. So basically the comment that you were talking about, Daryl, this fellow investing in office around the world, they're still going to continue to do so. Single tenant office, more so than multi-tenant office, uh, they're seeing not a lot of landlords willing to drop their price yet. So it's probably too early to tell truly about the global office market. But so far here in the middle market in Toronto, uh, we're not seeing a ton of movement other than maybe 25 basis point drop in uh, uh, increase in cap rates. Can I get an example of what a single tenant office building is? I'm trying to picture that. What's a single tenant office building? How big is that building? Uh, well, I mean, there's it, it could be 20,000 square feet. It could be 50,000 square feet. It could be 200,000 square feet. I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. Uh, Miles and I sold an office building in Rosedale that was a single tenant office building. Um, it was 10,000 square feet. Uh, on the land parcel of the parking lot, very small. And then the other one we sold in Mississauga was 50,000 square feet with about uh, eight, you know, 12 different tenancies. And so, you know, these are middle market office buildings, but if you take, for example, um, Google uh, just took a massive lease in a private equity owned office building that's just being built downtown East and they are taking pretty much the entire building. I believe Miles, maybe you know a little more specifics on this, but I think it's almost 400,000 square feet on King Street East. And that's a single tenant office building. And that's, wow. more, that's much more attractive to global investors that we were on the phone with um, than say multi-tenant right now, because they can, they can hone in on the risk of the tenancy and the covenant. So they basically, are going to do a full study on the tenant and what their potential is in the long term to actually pay rent. And it's a lot easier to do when you have one tenant and you can understand their business, whereas you have, you know, 10 to 20 or, you know, in something like Brookfield Place, you have, you know, almost 100 different tenancies uh, to actually bifurcate your, uh, your risk profile. 
Okay. So they're not all just like the small buildings in Rosedale that you sold. These could be 10, 15, 20 story uh, buildings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at the financial core, most of the office buildings there, TDC or Brookfield Place, uh, you know, actually a good example is CIBC Square, which is just being finished and built. If we we're in the office, you could see it behind us because we're in Brookfield and it's right behind us. But um, CIBC was going to take, I believe, 1.4 million square feet. So there's a massive single tenant office building that is owned by Heinz and, and a pension fund together that, uh, you know, would have a lot less risk than say another building because someone's just looking at CIBC as a tenant and they're going, what is their ability to pay rent? You know, obviously CIBC, you know, prints about $2 billion without doing everything, anything every year because they're one of the chartered banks in Canada, right? So uh, it's going to take a lot for a Canadian bank to actually, you know, get into some serious trouble. And I think if that happens, we're all in a lot of trouble. We are all in a lot of trouble. So we're looking at an article headline here. What will commercial real estate look like in 2021? Miles, what do you think? Well, I think commercial real estate in 2021 really depends on when the vaccine is going to come. Like as long as the vaccine doesn't come in place and we're in lockdown, only essential services are going to be occupying their office space. If you just look at groups like like Collier's um, going into Brookfield, it's very depressing walking around in the path where we're one of maybe a few tenants that are occupying the, their office space. But there's still groups like in the tech sector, <clears throat> I've hear, heard stories of groups that are in 5,000 square feet that they're not occupying their space, but they're continuing to grow and they're looking for 25 to 30,000 square feet. Um, for when their employees do come back into the workspace. So yeah. weren't there a couple of uh, just recent announcements of tech companies taking more space on their, like didn't Shopify just commit to more space? And who Amazon, was the other one? Was it Amazon? Right. Amazon and Shopify just committed to more space in downtown Toronto. Right. So, so the, yeah, I mean, exactly. So that's interesting. I mean, the next article I wanted to bring up is uh, RBC majority of Canadians want to work from home and it will change cities. What do you guys think about this? Well, that's a good question, but I think primarily people are getting fatigue in sitting inside and not being able to interact with uh, their different employees. So we're actually, our whole team is in the office every day. <laughs> we're probably an extreme version of that. I do think that the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, people certainly will want the freedom to work from home, you know, especially people with families where they have to deal with their children or they have to deal with, say, they have an elderly one, elderly one uh, living with them. I, I think there definitely will be a settling of, of what people are thinking. But two interesting anecdotes uh, on the phone with the senior level bank executive, and they were saying that they were moving their office space down to but 140 square feet per person. They're actually moving back up to the early 2000s, late 90s uh, metrics of about 240 square feet per person. So they're actually not gonna get rid of any of their office space. They're just giving people more space. And so mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're starting to change the interaction of the office back to what it traditionally was. The only difference now is that instead of coming into the office five days a week, 
you'll have a rotational shift perhaps, or you'll have hoteling stations where I'm gonna come in Tuesday to Thursday. And on Monday to Friday, I'm gonna work from home because I have to deal with my kids. I have to deal with my elderly mother who lives with me. Um, and I have to be able to be at home to deal with those things and have some flexibility. And I'll still get my work done, um, but it will change the amount of time I'm in the office. And the other anecdote I heard is that uh, traditional, another major landlord in Midtown Toronto um, just had two offers to lease at 30,000 square feet, the 60,000 feet uh, growing new tenancies, Midtown. And, you know, they're in a sense, not your traditional tech um, type tenancy. They're again, more of a traditional office tenant. So again, they're taking the standpoint that they believe they're going to need some office space in the future. They're just call it right sizing what that office space may be. Beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're seeing too. I think that's on our show. We've been talking about that a lot is productivity levels. We don't know what those are like yet uh, in office collaboration. Like there's so much info that these companies need to see how working from home is affecting their business overall. And I don't think, I don't think it's going to be as easy as just working from home and everything's going to be okay. I think a lot of businesses are going to need people in the office together. What, what are the reasons you guys are working together at the office right now? The biggest thing is collaboration and we're able to bounce ideas off of one another. We're working on multiple transactions at, at a time. So really just having that collaboration is key to driving success for our team. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think uh, physical interaction, you know, is irreplaceable there's no doubt about it but I, I think it definitely does depend on the business right like for example I mean my I have employees none of them are local you wouldn't know the difference other than the time zone right I mean for all anybody knows you know I'm in a basement in Cuba right now being held at gunpoint like we just you know we don't know where, where anybody is sometimes in some businesses it really doesn't make a difference but you know, I know for me, I've been in this house for a long time and I could really use some external interaction that felt safe, right? There, there, there's periods where I don't need it, but then every once in a while that feeling creeps in where it's like, okay, like I got to get an office. This is just, a, it's enough already, right? And, and so, but it's that healthy combination that I, I agree with Jeremiah. I think we're going to see a, a just a, a shift in how it works. People will definitely need the office space. There's no doubt. And there will definitely be a multitude of tech companies that will take on a lot of this office space. Um, we'll probably see a lot of manufacturing come back local and those people are going to need head offices and more offices, but it's definitely not going to be uh, straightforward, like yes, office or yes, work from home. It's going to, it has to be a hybrid model for most most businesses i think i mean what the hell do i know uh, yeah the elevators can't support it right it, it, it's just it's too it's, early to tell how it's really going to be affected you know everyone keeps making these massive generalizations but you have to remember that you know things are going to settle and behaviors are going to shift certainly but no one really knows at this point just like no one knows exactly what's going on with the virus but Another anecdote, we know our, our office leasing team at Collier's, they just did a 30, no, uh, just under 30,000 square foot office lease with an 
animation studio on downtown east side and the animation studio to our understanding they have to be in the office talking to one another because they're coordinating these very specialized very highly detailed animations so they have to be able to understand what one person's working on you know one aspect of a shot and the other one's working on another aspect they have to be able to talk very quickly so it's much more efficient Whereas we're hearing other people who have ad agencies, they're like, we never have to go back to the office. Or my two sisters who are corporate lawyers doing, you know, M&A work, again, same thing. They're like, we, we really don't have to be in the office more than two days a week when we talk on deal stuff because they're just in the weeds on details, you know, going over contracts, going over, you know, highly detailed things where they need a lot of concentration to work. So who knows? But at this point, we think it'll be somewhere in the middle. I think um, if you look at the screen here, Canada's economy has never been more dependent on real estate. And I think we will probably all agree, mainly because we all have a vested interest in agreeing. But I mean, this market's going to be nuts for a few years, right? Yeah, we have in Toronto, we have uh, what Miles and I like to say, the golden goose. Um, being fed by the golden feed, but essentially you have immigration, which Trudeau stated that there's going to be roughly 1.4 million people they're going to allow into the country in the next three years, of course, after they're allowed to enter, um, which uh, about 40% will actually come to the greater Toronto area, and almost 50% will come to the greater Golden Horseshoe. And then uh, the other aspect is low interest rates. Do we think they're going anywhere in the near term? Probably not. So with those two aspects that's really your your uh your golden goose that's can continue to lay eggs meaning that there's going to be massive demand and then finally what we call the golden feed is the fact that in the gta primarily um you know hamilton's a different story but we have the green belt and the green belt has enacted geographical um, structures around where you can build and where you can't build and so there is limited amounts of land, as Daryl knows very all too well when he is searching for new development land, there's not a lot of it. So this increases the price of land, it increases the price of, and the demand for product. And so therefore you have, you know, kind of this, call it perfect storm almost, which is not really gonna subside, subside anytime soon, but we do, of course, want a healthy market and we don't want a lot of people doing the, uh, you know, call it irrational buying that happened in 2017 to cause, cause that little crash. But um, we don't see this changing particularly uh, in large amounts rather um, anytime soon unless interest rates move. Right. And I mean, the likelihood, I mean, even if they move, they're not even going to get above 3% for years. I mean, that would have to be a crazy move. And 3% is still friggin' low, right? Like, exactly. Like if you go up a quarter point every six months, look how long that's going to actually take to even get back to 3%. That's at least two years, right? No, that's four years. Yeah. It, that, that's insane. It's absolutely insane. So, it so, is. It, there is examples of when you look back at World War II, when the interest rates started moving significantly in the 70s, 
of course, we were not around for that, but it, you know, things can always change pretty drastically. But at this point, the next five years, who knows? But uh, we don't see them moving. And I think there was a major difference between after World War II and now. I mean, back then, the, the, the dollar was tied to gold. Now it's tied to uh, a, the, a keystroke, right? <laughs> like, it, it's a, that's a significant difference. And we see that the powers that be have a vested interest in continually flooding the market with more and more money. Even as the interest rates go down, if they, so, so I mean, if they made money at this level of interest rate and this level of money, if the interest rate goes down, but the money supply goes up, they're still making their trillions and trillions of dollars off of the interest, right? So what, what, th there is a gigantic, gigantic incentive to continually flood the market with money. So, so now, Miles, like what, what has to happen even other than interest rates? Because even interest rates have room to move without doing much to the economy. What, like what actually? So now we have a pandemic, right? A few years ago, we introduced, uh, you know, different taxes and different uh, stress tests, stress tests tax. and like even if interest rates move 2% in the next couple of years, like wh what the hell can stop this train right now? Increase in capital gains. <laughs> hmm. That's just going to really stall out the marketplace. And you're going to have owners that were thinking about selling that have a terrible fear of, of paying the tax man. And, and they will just hold on for dear life and, until they have to sell. So, so, but that would, so that would kind of stall maybe the, the residential resale market. But then the prices of new stuff would probably go bananas because, I mean, it's not like people are going to stop coming here, right? So even, but I mean, that is a significant problem. I mean, if, if a whole, met, let's say 20, even 10% of the resale market stops selling because of a capital gains, I mean, it's probably going to be more than that. But um, let, let's just say a significant portion. I mean, what, what is that, the fallout? TK, what happens if people stop buying houses but there's still i mean there's still supply coming on from new people need housing that's never going to change never it's never the only way that the market can change is to take away the capabilities of the buyers you have to have some sort of restrictions so either economic meaning they don't have the job they don't have the ability to be able to pay their bills every month or on the financial side which is going to be interest rates or government policy and i mean they've already got so much you know in place already it's hard to say that the government's going to get involved more than they have interest rates will go up. I mean, you know, I mean, inflation's a joke right now, what they're saying. Um, prices are going up. There's, there's, there's eventually going to be enough debt for the government to no longer have any more tools to, to be able to implement um, stimulus. And they're going to start uh, selling bonds and having to raise interest rates to be able to get people to buy them. I mean, that's it. Eventually, the, the capabilities of buyers will be uh, stunted. It just, it's not going to happen this year. You know, too much going on for it to happen this year, but uh, in the next few years, that has to change. So, so I, I mean, we, three out of four of us, and actually TK lately has been working on more land deals. But uh, I mean, with with regards to land, I mean, there's an, there's a headline up here: the struggle to make Toronto real estate affordable. Um, I have another article here where people are up in arms about a uh, property downtown that they want to demolish, that's heritage. Um, I mean, we deal with this kind of crap all the time. I mean, let's just take my site in particular. 
in, as, as an example, I mean, it took me from October 5th to January 13th to have a pre-consultation meeting with the city. After I started the process in July, but they, you know, the, in July, they asked me for more information. So it took me a little bit of time to get them the information that they wanted. And then it took them a hell of a lot of time just to respond to me. And then once they responded to me on October 5th, that in five days, I will have a pre-consultation date. It took another three months to get the date. So, so between, you know, we have all these people coming in, interest rates are low, um, people are moving out of the city, people want to get into the city. Even if we wanted to match the demand, right? Even all the developers are trying their hardest and all the agents are trying to sell them stuff and people want to sell. You have to deal with crap like this where, oh my God, you have to keep the facade of this old, ugly building that nobody gives a crap about except for four <laughs> people on Twitter, right? Or, you know, a city staff is shorthanded in the middle of a pandemic while working from home and millions of people are out of work. Like, is this ever going to end? I mean, there was another article actually this week, sorry, where, where Ford is giving, you know, a, 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 a speech basically about removing red tape and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's going crazy on him because he's very pro-developer. And he's given like spe specific zoning, like to this site here on the screen in particular. You know, they, they, they basically jumped the entire queue. Um, but like... How are we ever going to catch up in this city when we're constantly dealing with all of this horseshit from the government while they're putting on the facade that they're, you know, doing their best and they want, you know, they want to avoid crisis? That was a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where do we start? Yeah. I mean, we hear that all the time. I, the only thing I'd say is that you know, the city staff, and we deal with them quite a bit too, they certainly work extremely hard. They are overworked. Uh, I believe that Toronto has to hire more planners in order to deal with the volume that comes in. But on top of what you were mentioning, there needs to be a systemized process to create some efficiencies. And that would be very helpful if it could be a um, citywide um zoning that would essentially allow as of right development to happen because it's almost impossible for as of right development to happen in Toronto. The planners really never want to allow it. And every single site has to be negotiated over. So you can understand that right now is roughly 300 uh, development sites in the planning process right now, as we speak. And because of that, that's 300 negotiations that are happening and you know, roughly cost about half a million to a million dollars to rezone each site, and you know, if not more for some of the larger sites. So you have this archaic system where each site has to be negotiated, time has to go in, money, and as you know, Derek or Daryl, this uh, you can't get an answer from the city very quickly because you know, they're already so busy with other work. So how do you exactly fix that? I think they really just have to make as of right zoning and bring it up to a modern, uh, a modern shift as where Toronto is today. Because I mean, look at 2020 Toronto as compared to 2000 Toronto, drastically different cities. 
drastically different. And, you know, now we have no more parking lots downtown. Now people are assembling land. You know, we're selling a site right now. It's 28 homes assembled together to make a tower site, right? It's very difficult to do that. So in order to actually complete some of the efficiencies um, on the planning process, you need to have one large zoning bylaw and shift it to allow as of right development. So just like New York City, you know what your height is. And if you don't have a certain height, you can grab density from a site next door, the air right sale, and be able to build a site and know what you're going to build and know the effect to it. Daryl's talked about that. So just for me and, and other listeners who aren't uh, familiar with that, you're just saying have a set of guidelines. As long as you fall within those guidelines, you're going to feel confident to, to push forward. But because they know that there still could be a lot of negotiations, these developers aren't pushing forward and they're not willing to put their money because they know that the city may not approve, even though it does meet the guidelines. Is that right? Daryl, I think you should comment on that because you're going through it. Well, okay. The, 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 the crazy yeah. part about this discussion is there are the set of guidelines. They have tall building guidelines, mid-rise building guidelines, right? They have the official plan and they have the provincial plan. And all of these things combine to tell you exactly what you should be allowed to build on your property. And if you just follow those guidelines, it should be very simple. So for example, on the deal that me and these gentlemen are working on on Kingston Road, it, it's super simple. Like, and we designed a building that fits exactly within the guidelines. There should have been nothing that they could have said, but apparently they are allowed to pull rules out of their butts and try and make them stick. How do you really feel? But but it's well, it's that's the problem, Daryl, is their guidelines. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what I was meaning, TK, is that you know, Miles and I'll deal deal with this so constantly that we feel as though if there was a set of rules in place that would allow you to build within this box, just go ahead, then you'd have a lot of development move much quicker. And the mm -hmm. primary focus of this argument is not so much on the tower site because we understand in a tower site you're really changing a lot you're adding a lot of shadows in some spec okay sure you know we can talk about that after but the mid-rise building this is the most affordable most uh, pragmatic set of housing in the city of toronto today and the reason is it's very livable like i live in something that you would be considered a mid-rise and it's something that is along the main avenues of the city, which uh, TK to the listeners, the city of uh, Toronto official plan defines avenues as, for example, Queen Street, Dundas, College, uh, some of these commuter east-west roads that are not high-rise areas, but have neighborhoods behind them, but are still very busy, high-voluminous areas. Kingston Road is another one. If they would allow mid-rise to be built in these avenue areas and allow an as of right eight to 10 to 12 story building with very, very minimal parking because no one parks or no one drives nearly as much anymore. This would speed up massively the amount of mid-rise buildings that can get built around the city, which is a very usable, pragmatic set of housing for people who can actually afford it, right? because they have to get into a condo 
that is say, you know, 500 to a thousand square feet at say 800 to $1,200 a square foot, it's much less expensive than you're buying the homes in the back that are, you know, one and a half to two and a half million dollars. So this is really what we're big advocates of. And, you know, obviously we're not planners. We have a planner on our team actually, but uh, we do understand there's more to this in the details, but we would hope that there can be this comprehensive zoning review that would allow for modernizing of these, these actual rules and creating the little subjective tiers of guidelines that Daryl's speaking about. So, so Miles, like, what is stopping? I mean, we're not the first group of people to have this discussion and to have this belief. It's probably been going on since the 60s or 70s. Like, Miles, what the hell is stopping them from being willing to do this? Well, like Jeremiah was saying earlier, um, just the city is severely understaffed, all the, the local planners. And then it's also just bureaucracies and, and political aspects. If you look at chief planners, they're not in there for 10 plus years. They're constantly rotating. So you have these new ideas, these new philosophies that these chief planners are, are looking at. So they have different priorities. So it, it essentially stalls what we're trying to discuss and, and move forward. So that's where we see some of the challenges. Like if you look at Greg Linter, and he's doing a great job, but one of his main focuses is pushing the missing middle marketplace, adding more mid-rise developments throughout the city. But again, that takes time and processes to push forward. But wasn't Kismat, Kismat an advocate of that as well? Like for years? Like it, hasn't every chief planner been an advocate of, you know, that missing middle and pushing it through quicker? Like what the <laughs> hell's going on? It's it, crazy. It doesn't work that way, actually. And I would recommend everyone to go follow a fellow named Planner Sean on Twitter, actually, because he deals with this missing middle uh, planning procedures constantly. He's at the Committee of Adjustment, and you see the effect of what's happening. Someone goes in to build a threeplex, a fourplex, fiveplex, something in that kind of smaller housing program. It's, it's almost as hard to get that zoned as it is a high-rise building, and yet you can build these large mansions in these areas very easily, which you know obviously don't add any density, and they only really benefit to the existing homeowner. I say this actually owning a home like that, and so I think that really they need to actually allow that, and they have to an extent. Uh, um, they've allowed laneway housing, and now garden suites will be allowed in. That's a great missing middle program but we'll see that's a tiny <laughs> fraction of the that's a tiny fraction of the market yeah. right and it, most yeah, people exactly don't want to build something else at the back of their property that's just the reality like how many people actually want to build something at the back of their property yeah how many applications are out right now for laneway housing eight that's a great question it, it's a single digit be more i don't know that because we don't trade that type of real estate but Alex Sharp and Craig at Lanescape, who actually helped put that policy forward. Um, those guys are doing this uh, day in, day out. And I believe that last time I spoke to them, it must have been somewhere around 100 um, homes that were in for this. They've been dealing with quite a few themselves. But that's, you know, that's not enough, right? There's, there needs to be a lot more. And if you look at the R, R zoning, 
in the city of Toronto. It's actually one of the best zonings to have if you have a house in what we call uh, the neighborhood's official plan, which is, as we call it, the moniker is the yellow belt because you really can't build more than four stories. But in at least if you're allowed to build up to four stories and allow multiple units without charging massive development fees on each unit, you'd probably speed up the uh, density parameters in these neighborhoods, right? Because it's just, it's too expensive. You build a four unit house, you're gonna spend roughly um, up to almost uh, $50,000 per unit, I think is the development charge for these new units. So oh no, it's way more than that, bud. For, well, it's 50 or 60,000 per unit to add in. And that's where you're gonna get, you know, this economic sense that won't work. Right, because you're like, well, I want to build a fourplex, but it's going to cost me two hundred and forty thousand dollars to add in the additional units there. Well, you know, if on top of the existing units, right, because you don't get charged for how many are on site. So there's little things like economic sense, um, and there's little things like these planning paradigms that you have to these hoops you have to jump through, and it's all slowing down development. It's not adding density in these neighborhoods. And it's therefore pushing people to go to condos, pushing people to go to mid-rise. And of course, as Daryl knows, it's hard to find that land and it's hard to build those buildings too. So there's a big plug in the system and the demand outweighs the supply. So what's one gonna, one go ahead, Daryl. What's gonna happen when they do open up the floodgates, like when the borders open again? Like we, we can't build enough. Yes, rents are down in, in downtown Toronto for the next few months at the most. What, like, what, are the, the, what are the prices gonna look like at the end of 2021 in the condo market that like, really didn't miss a beat even though sales were down for a little bit. Now sales are crazy in the condo market again, but new construction condos by the end of 2021, the prices continued through the pandemic. When, when the when the borders open again, like what is that going to look like? Because there's there's not that much inventory coming online because the pandemic slowed down the application process, slowed down all the construction projects. W right now, what's with, the average with, price in Toronto for for a condo? So with, with immigrants, though, like majority of them, the first three years are renting. I know people come with money. There's lots of people who come from overseas, but. You're looking at about a, a traditional uh, immigration um, migration will be from uh, a condo or apartment into low rise eventually after three years. So right now, I think the rental market, it's almost like a blessing because it's been so, um, uh, you know, there's been such a high vacancy rate and, and prices obviously down 20%. So it's been understimulated. I think now with immigration, that'll help with the rental situation. Um, my biggest concern is, and, and maybe you guys can look at this, is the Federation of Rental Housing Providers, when they talked about 20,000 units short based on the immigration and everything else that we had from 2019, are we seeing more rental buildings now? Like when you guys are talking to your clients and developers, are they, are they looking at, should I build a condo or should I build a purpose-built rental? Have you, have you seen a switch in that over the last year or two? hundred percent. We're actually in the market right now with a forward sale, a 90 unit rental building that will be built. Um, and then two other sites, uh, we're selling large sites actually around 300,000 square feet. And some of the bidders that will probably, we haven't had an offer date yet, but, but when they bid, we'll probably be rental builders. So, uh, 
is definitely happening a lot more. And especially now with the fact that um, uh, it's harder to find the right type of product for a condo, people are starting to look at this and starting to think um, as a developer, I, I would rather hold onto a property in the next 10, 20 years in a location that I can't, uh, I can't actually find the exact same location again, probably, you know, they're taking a probability um, standpoint, but I, I really think that it's going to happen more. But one thing that Daryl said earlier was, you know, this massive amount of demand, everyone wants to own homes. I, I think part of that is that Canadians in general, minus Quebec, owning a home is a very big cultural standpoint. I believe the last stats were somewhere around 65%, whereas I think in Quebec, it's closer to 40% ownership. Um, when that culture starts to shift from an owning standpoint to a renting standpoint, then you'll really see the rental builders uh, move fairly quickly on um, providing that product. But right now, it's still only about 15 to 20% of the entire development market. Well, and we read an article a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, that was talking about the amount of uh, rental applications in for new construction now. And I think it was like a total of six, 7,000 units, but it's spread out over, you know, it's they're in the application process. Like God only knows when those are actually going to hit the market, right? And, right? Yeah. So, so th there's no way that we're going to, and the incentives are just not there to build rental like they used to be. I mean, the only incentive that I know about now is like some really, really cheap money, but even that cheap money, I think, was at one and a quarter percent. It's not even that cheap anymore when you can get a residential mortgage at 1.6%. Miles, actually, you should tell them about uh, our friend over on the east side who really wanted to build a building, but he had to work through CMHC. I think you know what I'm talking about, south of Maine. Yeah, so this site is on the northeast corner at Maine and Kingston Road. So this, this client of ours, um, really great guy. He was a small time builder. He's only, he's only built, um, detached houses. He's done a few, like, uh, three, four units, uh, multi-res buildings. And he really wanted to take the next step up. So he ended up assembling, um, a piece of land over on, on Kingston road in Maine. And, and I believe it's around 75 units that he's building and they're under construction right now. And like Jeremiah was saying, he had to leverage himself with all of his other assets and then use CMHC um, financing to, to put, to put together the deal. And then also they're doing affordable um, rental, affordable units as well um, to help create some incentives. Is that through the city or CMHC? Through the city, the open door program. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, so it's work. It's working. <laughs> they're, it is they're... to a sense, yeah. CMHC yeah. has a great financing program for affordable and mid-market, median market um, uh, units. And they will essentially give you almost all of your construction financing so you have minimal equity in. But there still is some equity requirements. You have to have 80% of your trades fixed cost, right? Because they're giving you a certain amount of money. They don't want an increase in cost. Um, but it's a, certainly a great program. 
And actually, that's a good segue into something. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, to talk about the increase of construction costs. This is a massive problem. Oh, my God. Affordability yeah. issue in the city. And this is something that I personally have really hard time understanding. And I don't want to push the trades as the bad people here, but the unions are so strong in the city that it seems as though there's no leeway for the demand that comes in. And so they have to protect their workers and they have to control the cost in. So there's this massive shortage labor for skilled trades, uh, but also in the city of Toronto, there's certain trades that won't allow in uh, competition from external areas. And uh, to my knowledge, this is causing a massive increase in pricing. I mean, construction costs are almost going up 20 to 30% year over year in some cases. And there's one cost consultant that we were listening to it was last year or something, but they were saying that they believe this will continue to happen for the next three to four years until there is a massive influx of skilled trades. So that's a program that the province could actually start to do very, very easily by uh, allowing some sort of quick access accelerated program for all new immigrants coming in or for current Canadians here to allow for skilled trade programming. And I think they're, they are doing a program like this, but this is the crux of the issue when it comes to construction costs. The, there's this massive increase every year and it's really causing, uh, again, an affordability issue because of course the developers still need to make their X return because the banks still need to finance them and the high net worth individuals and the pension funds that are actually funding the developers aren't gonna take less of a return because if they were going to take less of a return, they would just go look at different investments, you know, like equities. It's all about where is their, uh, where can they get this return? They're going to search for it no matter what. So until that happens, you're not actually going to have the developers take this cost and therefore the investors, the pension funds and the banks. So you have to decrease the cost somehow and at least bring it back to maybe, you know, 10% below would be great, or even close to 5% for a regular market. But this is a massive issue, and we look at it daily. Listen, just on our project on Kingston Road, forget about construction costs. Development costs are about half a million dollars for just the application fee. Forget about permits. Just to apply for a permit is half a million dollars. Over a project of this size, it's over a thousand dollars per unit. That I I'm not just gonna eat. No other developer is gonna eat. That gets passed on to the end user, right? Just like you're saying. So so. Well, it's the, I think it's the problem that you have to say like everyone does need to make a return to a sense, um, but banks aren't gonna finance you finance you when you don't have a proper return sure you won't actually build the product if you don't build in a proper return so sure. i think there's a lot of misconstrued uh, conceptions there that developers of greeting are trying to take every profit dollar available yes of course they're going to push the envelope but in our experience miles correct me if i'm wrong here but everyone's trying to reach the price they're exactly 10 percent, and they're just trying to get to that 15 percent return miles what does that mean reach the price so well, essentially they're already pricing out in the future what do you mean yeah. so 
Well, so essentially, essentially that they're they're trying to hit a certain margin on the development program, and the landowners have been approached by you know five, ten, fifteen different developers off market, right? Say this is you know not in a system where we're taking uh, a doing a modified bid tender and representing the ownership group. This is just an off market case. So the owner of the property has a piece of land that you know he's not going to develop, and he's been approached by. 10, 15, 20 people, he's getting called weekly, right? So he doesn't really know what the pricing is of his of his land. And that's you know where we actually come in and help educate and value the land. But until that happens, he's just asking for more and more money for the site because maybe he doesn't really want to sell. And so in effect, he's just asking for more until he thinks that it's just some crazy number. And because of that, developers are having to reach to hit those margins. So it's this massive cycle that is turning around from the high construction costs to the high land prices to the developers trying to hit a certain margin and trying to reach to hit that margin so that the banks will actually finance their project. And this cycle continues to repeat itself. And as you mentioned, the cost to actually develop on the soft cost side, um, the uh, levies, the taxes from the city, those are increasing as well because their costs are increasing. And this all comes down to the demand and supply of the product in the market. Again, if there was way more supply, then there would be way more competition and all these developers would have to compete against each other and they would start lowering their costs and the banks would start lowering their return metrics. The construction companies would be getting less and less projects um, for each construction company, there'd be so much demand, so they'd have to decrease their costs. So in turn, you'd have this massive decrease that would in turn at least subside uh, pricing or maybe even decrease it. I'm not sure, but at this point, the average condo is a $1,044 a square foot, I think, or, and new launches are at twelve, almost $1,300 a square foot. Where's so, this, in the core or GTA? Uh New launches this past year in the city of Toronto was just under $1,300 a square foot. Okay. New launches in the 905 region was $915 a square foot. And then, so the average selling price for condos last year and a quarter, it was still up about 4%, not drastically, but was just over $1,000 a square foot. And there was probably something Miles and I watch very closely is the unsold inventory uh, because that really shows where the market is going. It's a little, um, call it crystal ball into where people are going because developers will always price their unsold inventory just a tiny bit higher than the market so that they don't really have to sell it because they've hit their sales metric in order to get their construction financing. So it's product that they may want to hold on to um, and that product uh, has actually decreased. So the market is gobbling up unsold inventory and it declined last year, I think 4% year over year to about 12,000 units or so, which is about almost 10% below the 10 year average. So wow. the inventory is actually decreasing. Like you said, pricing is not gonna get better. Everyone thinks there's gonna be this big crash. It's not gonna happen until the interest rates until the inventory, till the immigration stop. I mean, that's what we believe anyways. That's why we have you on the show, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's what it is. I mean, it's, it's Toronto. It's a great city. There's 
so many opportunities here and there's just not enough places to go around. And that's, uh, that's what we're seeing on all fronts, not just like condos. Now we're going to start taking uh, a little bit of steam out of the freehold market, even though the freehold market's uh, the lowest inventory ever. And this is all across North America. I was in a nice mastermind this week. Every major city in North America has, is dealing with the same thing. Record low inventories in December sales are just increasing. So everybody's got this same issue and uh, those prices are going to get out of hand. And what are your options? Your options are you have to go into the condo market. You know, like you, you have no choice as an end user with a six to $800,000 budget. What are you going to buy? Right. You're buying well, a condo. And, and all of these cities that are dealing with the same issue are also not allowing immigration in or anywhere close to levels from 12 months ago. So when that when the world kind of opens up again, it's going to be crazy. Well, there's going to be a bit of a delay, though, we believe, uh, which has happened already um, because of the immigration levels being decreased for a slight amount. But uh, the condo market is a very slow moving market. So the changes you see now happen two to three years before. I think, you know, the right number is around 18 to 24 months uh, because as Daryl knows, <laughs> it takes 18 to 24 months to rezone your property. And then it takes another 36 to 40 months to actually build the building. So when you've actually pre-sold your property, it's not actually coming online for three years. So all these changes are extremely slow because they really just take a lot of time and they don't come in place until then. So whereas the immigration people move here and they're like, I need a house today. Where am I going to live? <laughs> no, and listen, there's investors who will snatch up everything ahead of those renters, right? So, I mean, even if the immigration, like even if the immigrants coming in are going to be renters for two, three years before they can put together a down payment for something, um, somebody's buying the units because, I mean, I'm not looking at the most brilliant panel of guys right here, but the writing is on the wall. It doesn't take a genius to figure this out, right? It takes some weird outside um, freaky incident to make this thing slow down. Very, very irregularly is there a local issue that slows down the Toronto real estate market, right? You mean the pandemic? Well, I mean, <laughs> who would have thought, right? Well, that's when you look at it, actually, another good guy for the listeners to watch is Ben Myers on Twitter. Uh, he's an analyst. He follows closely the stats in the market. And reading his last report, the rents in downtown Toronto were down, I think, 11%. And in some cases, almost 20%. So you have a lot of condos actually... Uh, stopping to be in demand in the financial core, specifically entertainment district, downtown east, downtown north, uh, midtown. So this has actually caused a bit of some leeway in this market. Resale condos as well, they are not, um, they are not nearly in as demand. So they've actually decreased in pricing too. It's a nice little breather in a market that seems to continually chug along nonstop. That like you were saying, Daryl, you know, no one here wants a bubble market to happen. We want a balanced market to happen. So this little bright spot right now, I mean, if you look at it, it's probably an opportunity to buy product at a more affordable price. I know my sister, for one, was able to lease a unit, rent a unit downtown um, at, it was, I think, $1,650 a square foot or 1060 uh 
$650 a month, which today would be the same price as her older sister who rented in 2017 for the same type of unit. Um, and just before the pandemic, that same unit was around 2300, 2200. So it's a nice little bright spot to actually make the market more affordable. It was necessary. Is it going to happen again? I don't know. It's a very an incentive too. Three months, months rent. Yeah. yeah, and then they're also giving moving moving costs allowance. Like we've never seen that before. No, and listen, you're not going to see it for very long. This window of opportunity is going to be very very short, and it may get better in the short term. But once it starts going back up, there's nothing that's going to stop this train. There's going to be people on the streets with signs saying like, I need somewhere to live. I need somewhere to live. And they're going to go to Hamilton or they're going to go to Barrie or they're going to go to Newmarket in a mid-rise for God's sakes, right? Wherever there's a ghost station, Stouffville. We're big fans of Hamilton, by the way. It's a great city. It's actually growing. It's got an urban fabric. It's got really nice areas to live in outside. We've got an office building for sale there. We've got two pieces of land there for sale and a retail property too. I mean, we watch that market very closely. I think it's one to watch. I think that it has this old moniker as a steel city and, but it's going to be good in the future. That's, that's my little Hamilton plug. I like that. City. <laughs> awesome. Well guys, it was a pleasure talking to both of you today. We really appreciate that you came on the show. We are out of time, Thanks, but time. it seems to me that we should have a part two. So we would love to have you on the show again, maybe in a couple of months. We'll book you on if you guys would be willing to do so. I think everybody must have got a lot out of that. I know I definitely did. You guys are a pleasure to work with. It was a great, great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Anybody have any last words before I hit the button over here? No, I just want to say thanks again, Daryl and TK, for having us on. And we'd love to have a part two to this. So Awesome. We'd love to have you. Thank you very much, Daryl, TK. And certainly, you know, we are brokers. Information is our product. So if anyone wants to reach out to us, uh, I'm on Twitter at Jay Shamus and Instagram. And then Miles and I are on collierscanada.com if you ever want to reach out to us and ask any questions about the market. Certainly all we do is talk about the market. So we appreciate that time speaking today with Daryl and TK and uh, we look forward to the next one we will uh the, the next one will be after kingston road is sold <laughs> we can tell the whole story beginning to end right hopefully yeah that would be great Good. so be i i got confidence in you guys we will uh post your contact information in the description below so anybody that's interested in speaking with these fine gentlemen that's where you'll be able to find their contact information thanks as always happy sunday everybody and we will talk to you soon. New on CuriosityStream, grab your decoder ring. We're cracking the world's most famous encryptions. From the mom who took down the mob to the Zodiac Killer. See how the pros hide their secrets in plain sight on Cracking the Code. Plus, it was impossible to recruit intelligence agents without recruiting war criminals. Meet the retirees of the Third Reich who gathered Cold War intelligence for the U.S. on Nazis and the CIA. Watch now on CuriosityStream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.